This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you in part by Flint and Tinder exclusively at Huckberry.com. Guys, it's September. It's still hot. It was like 96 degrees a day. Felt like 105 here in Oklahoma. But I'm looking forward to fall when things start cooling down and I can start busting out my fall wardrobe. And a big part of my fall wardrobe is made up of Flynn Tinder. You can find it at huckberry.com. Flynn Tinder, all the stuff is made in America and they have just classic staples, guy staples like Henley's jeans. They got the 10-year hoodie, which is one of my favorite hoodies. They've got button-down Oxfords. They got a wax trucker jacket. It's one of my favorites. Go check it out. Go to huckberry.com. Check out the Flynn Tinder collection. Start gearing up for fall. Definitely check out the 10-year hoodie. Definitely check out their wax trucker jacket and definitely check out the jeans and Henleys from Flint and Tinder. And if it's your first time purchasing from Huckberry, use code ART15 at checkout to get 15% off your first purchase. So huckberry.com, code ART15 to get 15% off your first purchase from Huckberry. Make sure to check out Flint and Tinder and stock up for fall. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Quick, name the president who's on the dime, or think about the letters and numbers on your license plate. Were you stumped for a moment? That's the strange thing about the powers of observation. We can look at something a thousand times and never really notice it. Our struggle to notice what's around us is even worse than our smartphone age, where we often have tunnel vision that limits itself to a little handheld screen. My guest today wrote a book that aims to help us recapture the keen use of our senses. His name is Rob Walker, and he's the author of The Art of Noticing. And he argues that tuning into things normally overlooked not only provides fodder for art and business, but can make life seem more vibrant and engaging. Rob and I begin our conversation discussing what it means to notice and the benefits that come from noticing. We then spend the rest of the conversation walking through several exercises you can start doing today to strengthen your noticing muscles, including creating observational scavenger hunts and collections. Rob also suggests several ways to notice overlooked things at museums, and why looking at the world like there's a dramatic heist about to go down causes you to notice more in your environment. Lots of great insights in the show. After it's over, check out our show notes at aom.is noticing. Rob joins me now via clearcast.io. Rob Walker, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Brad. So you just published a book called The Art of Noticing, 131 Ways to Spark Creativity, Find Inspiration, and Discover Joy in the Everyday. So what got you noticing, noticing? (laughs) Well, I guess a couple of things. One of which is going to be pretty obvious. I probably don't have to spend a lot of time discussing the idea that we're living in this, you know, information shoving economy of ideas where everyone's trying to get your attention. We're at time of distraction and it's partly down to our phones and stuff like that, but it's also just the nature of society now. Like everybody wants your attention all day long and it's hard to focus and to zone in on the things that you want to zone in on instead of other things. So I, I, I felt that frustration too, like a lot of people do, I think. But then related to that, I teach a class, a short class once a year at the School of Visual Arts, a design class. And one of my big themes is getting students to pay attention to things that other people have overlooked. I think it's an important part of of the design process, but of many processes, right? That's kind of the beginning of innovation and progress or whatever. It's like noticing what others have overlooked. And what I had noticed in students is that they often felt because of this kind of attention economy that we're in right now, 
they would sometimes feel that like, well, if they were interested in something, but no one else, like it wasn't trending, it wasn't hot, it wasn't a topic of discussion, that maybe it wasn't important, you know? And I thought that's a disastrous outcome. Like this is like, you, you can't go through life just paying attention to what everyone else pays attention to. <laughs> and so I thought about this as a subject of a book. And what happened was for a long time, the idea was going to be a book that would kind of spend a lot of time explaining the problem and then have this section at the back with like, here are some things you can do in your life, add to your life to try to get your attention back, try to get your you know focus back. And I gradually finally realized that I was not really interested in explaining the problem because everybody already knew it. I was just interested in the tips. So the tips ended up sort of taking over the book. So now it's a short introduction saying, here's the problem. And then, as you say, there's 131. My publisher doesn't like me to call them assignments, but they're prompts or exercises or games or provocations to get you things you can add to your life and add to your kind of daily practice that will get you back to controlling your own attention, at least from time to time, you know, just devoting a bit of your day or your week to these things and making them fun and getting some control back. So, okay, but we won't talk about the problems. Everyone knows there's a problem. Yeah. But let's talk about like the benefits that come whenever right. you, you experience that focus and that attention or when you notice things that people overlook. I mean, what, what, are the op- what are the opportunities there? And like, how does noticing things that will get overlooked make us feel more human? Right. So there's kind of a range of answers to that. There's the, and, there's, and different kinds of people respond to, to different ways of approaching this. So on a very practical, I think, level, there's almost no, like, there's a lot of artists in the book because artists are really good at noticing things and at drawing our attention to stuff that we had missed. But it's also, if you think about it, that's what an entrepreneur does. And that's what an inventor does. And that's what a good manager does is notice things that other people overlooked. And whether that's a problem that needs to be solved or whether that's something great that's overlooked that needs to be celebrated or whether it's something puzzling that needs to be explained. And, you know, I mentioned design earlier. That's what a designer does. I remember meeting in the course of my work as a journalist, interviewing Johnny Ive years and years ago, the Apple guy. And the way he <laughs> critiqued, this was so long ago that I was using an analog tape recorder. And the way that he sort of, his comments about the way that that object was designed, it was like, this guy just sees the world in a different way. Like he picks up on details that the rest of us miss. So there are these really practical reasons to work on these skills, to sort of build the attention muscles. But then at the other end of the spectrum, I think just as important are this kind of softer side of it of, you know, just maintaining focus and maintaining a kind of control over your own engagement with the world, being present. Sounds a little like meditation mindfulness stuff. It kind of is. And there's a reason that that mindfulness idea is so popular right now at the same time that we're trying to fend off all of these distractions is that it's a it's a it's a way of reconnecting with yourself, of being really present with other people, just very, very practical day-to-day stuff. That I feel like we all, whether you're a manager or whether you're a parent, sometimes we just need to be able to pull back, disconnect from other people's attempts to control our attention and pay attention to what matters to us and kind of 
identify what matters to us so that we're paying attention to the right things. And that feels good when you identify and you actually pay attention to the things you want to pay attention to. Like it just feels good. Or whenever you get that insight, you figured out on your own without having to go to the internet to figure out, like it just, it's empowering. It just feels awesome. Yeah, I think so. And I mean, you know, and it's, it's obvious in some of the big ways, but then there are these small victories that you can have along this of just like, I mean, the most workaday things like just when you're walking the dog, right? I see people walking the dog and checking their phone. And it's like, why are you doing, you know, like, don't, <laughs> you don't need to know what's trending on Twitter right now. Be present in the world that you and your dog are occupying. And maybe you'll notice, I don't know, pay attention. I like to sort of try to figure out what my dog is paying attention to. And he'll make me notice things like, oh, there's a bird over there that I wasn't tuned into. And, you know, it just makes you feel like, oh, I'm here. I'm not somewhere else. I'm actually here. So let's walk through some of these prompts you talk about in the book. Because as you said, I think a lot of people, this muscle of noticing is atrophied because we've had other We've had these external sources tell us what to pay attention to. So it's, it's helpful to have, you know, sort of a prompt to guide yeah. this as we you know, strengthen that noticing muscle. The first one you talk about is creating, you know, scavenger hunts for yourself. What does that look like and how do you decide what to look for? Yeah, this was my, it's the first exercise in the book because it was sort of the gateway drug for me personally to think about this. Now, it came from the, the example that I share in the book is that I was making a business trip to San Francisco, a city I've been to a number of times, beautiful city, but like I'd been there enough times that I, you know, I don't want to say I was over it, but, but you know, I was past that sort of crush phase that you have in a city that's that beautiful. And I was going to be really busy. I was going to be running around. I did not have time to do any proper sightseeing. So I wanted to give myself an assignment of something to look for everywhere I went. And my only criteria, and this is kind of important, is that it had to be something that nobody else particularly wanted me to look at. You know what I mean? It wasn't like, I wasn't responding to somebody else's prompt. It was my prompt. And so the thing I chose was security cameras, which was a little bit arbitrary. I wasn't like working on a project related to that or anything. I just like, oh yeah, security cameras. And everywhere I went, it really, <laughs> it really was an eye opener to see how pervasive they are and to see how they're treated differently. There are some that are kind of flashy, like they want to be noticed. And then there are some that are kind of stealthily hidden that, uh, that don't want to be noticed. But it also shifts your gaze when you're looking at for something specific like that. So you're kind of just looking around in a different way and you're kind of looking past the street advertisements and the people trying to get your attention. And it was so much fun. And I did end up writing about this later, but it was so much fun that I, I, I still, to this day, I look at security cameras everywhere I go. But at the end of that trip, I got to the airport and, you know, called my wife to say, hey, I'm planes on time, whatever. And like, hey, she knew I was doing this and that I was taking pictures. And I said, hey, and you would not believe the security camera situation at the airport. It's bananas. And she said, uh, she said Rob, just please do me a favor and don't walk all around the airport taking pictures of all the security cameras. <laughs> No, Which uh, was good advice. Right. No, I've done the security camera. I've done that too. Like I'll go into a store and just see how many security cameras I can yeah. find, which is fun. Another one, you know, you suggest looking for abandoned payphones, which I've yep. done as well. And those are harder and harder to find. Well, I think that that, uh, here's the interesting thing about that is that if they're hard to, it's sort of, it tells you something about the neighborhood you're in in some ways, if there are a lot of abandoned payphones around. I like to look, for a lot of, another one I like to look for is no loitering signs. That's another tell as to if you're, 
like there are certain neighborhoods where there will be a lot of no loitering signs and there are some neighborhoods where there won't be any. So, and I've liked to look for in the past, I've looked for, um, neighborhood watch signs, you know, you mm-hmm. know, the neighborhood watch right. with the sort of, uh, shady, shady criminal guy, guy. Right, yeah. side, <laughs> side eye. And, and, uh, when we lived in Savannah, I used to particularly Georgia, Savannah, Georgia, I used to particularly, I got obsessed with ones that had been graffitied in some way because <laughs> I mm. just thought it was funny that, uh, <laughs> if your neighborhood watch sign has been defaced, like. Maybe you have a problem. Yeah, you don't have a neighborhood watch. So uh, you you talked about you started the security camera thing without any goal in mind, but you said it later on it paid off because it gave you a, a story idea. Yeah, well, I write a lot about design stuff, and um, so both neighborhood watch signs and security cameras. When I I wrote a little bit about my experience for Design Observer, and people sent me examples. It, it turned out to be kind of an interesting design subject because there are places where there is actually in. Uh, Europe where they've actually given thought to what security cameras could look like. Cause I think that the visual impact of a security camera right now is kind of negative. When you see them, it makes you tense. So there are places where they've tried to sort of make them softer seeming. And so anyway, the point is that it became, and this is, I mean, I'm a journalist and this is part of what a journalist does for a living too, is try to pick up on things that uh, are right in front of you, but no one's paying attention to, you know, break from the quote unquote pack or find the different spin on my favorite example. This is Jimmy Breslin's when, you know, like everybody else, he had to cover the Kennedy funeral, the JFK funeral in the sixties, but he was the one who came up with the unique angle to write about the guy who dug the grave. Right. Mm. So he spent the day yeah. with the guy who dug the grave and that's sort of thinking in a different way outside the pack. And that, that piece is considered a sort of classic of, um, of journalism. So a similar exercise to the scavenger hunt is starting a collection, but you suggest getting more conceptual than say I'm collecting in stamps or baseball cards. What does your idea of a collection yeah. look like? Yeah. Well, so I should credit here and I should, I should say that once I, st- once I got going on it, you know, I was explaining how I sort of headed off in this direction. Once I started thinking, uh, I want to make this about suggestions, things people can do. A lot of them I made up, but then a lot of them came from reading and things other people had done. And then I interviewed people and came up with ideas from them. And then I got my students involved. But so one that was inspired by someone else, there's this guy, George Nelson, who's a design furniture designer who wrote a book in the 70s called How to See. But it wasn't really How to See. It was really how he saw. <laughs> it was, And it was essentially a collection of his of his, of things he had noticed photography and stuff. And he, he was my inspiration for this one because he was a collector of, of, of images of, but images drawn from reality. So he would just take pictures of like every arrow he could spot, every clock, every manhole cover, you know, certain geometric shapes. And then he would get really interestingly conceptual of contrasts, like hard and soft. So a flag outside of a concrete building or, or whatever. And I was just, I love his inventiveness around this. And you could almost pick anything. Uh, right now I'm collecting, as it were, the, the sort of structures at the top of, I guess, I guess they're telephone. I mean, are they telephone poles or power poles? They have these big rickety weird collections. <laughs> <laughs> of hardware up there that I guess are running power. 
I don't even know. But this, this, it's this, and it's this, it's this kind of thing that we're trained not to pay attention to, that we're trained to just zone out and look past. And that's the kind of stuff I find it really fun and exciting to look at. And then the birds that are up there, stuff like that. That's what I'm collecting right now. So that's the, that's the collection idea. You can take pictures as he did. And I know people who do this on Instagram who take pictures of traffic cones or a friend of mine does close-ups of telephone poles, which is really weird, but they're fascinating. <laughs> and it's just a, it's just a, uh, it's a different way of taking in the world. Yeah. That's where, that's a, a point where you're, your tool that is often the source of distraction can be a tool used to notice more. So you might actually not have to take, you know, share it on Instagram, but you just start your little collection, yeah. you have your, your little collection in your phone of your contrasts yeah. that you find. Yeah. In the world. Or you could not bother to take pictures at all. I mean, I don't take pictures. And I think that this is, this is a, an important point to make actually, because I think that sometimes there's certain kind of uh, people who react to this stuff by, by, by thinking like, oh, okay, so I need to make a dedicated Instagram account about this. And then if it, it's like, no, you really don't. Like everything doesn't have to be translated. And in some ways, there's a lot of reasons not to do that. Like don't, don't automatically convert every personal looking project into something that gets subjected to the marketplace, right? Where you have to start worrying about how many likes it's getting. <laughs> if that happens, fine. But I just think that there's a lot of, it's not noticing and seeing and paying attention is a means to an end, but it's also, it can also be an end in itself. Like it's really satisfying to just learn to take enjoyment from the act. So another noticing activity you recommend is looking slowly. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Well, so this is specifically sort of came out of the context of museums. There's a there's actually a, a slow art day thing that happens every year, but you could do it anytime. And the the, the 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 basic premise of slow art day is that you get together with a group of people you go to the museum and instead of trying to, you know, <laughs> you've been to museums and you've seen people spend, I think that the average is eight seconds or something <laughs> looking at any given painting and people are practically trying to like run through the museum. So instead of doing that, you just decide you're going to look at only five things for 10 minutes each. And then afterward you get together and talk about what you looked at and what you, and what you took in. So this is obviously a really different way of perception in general. We're so used to trying to rack up as many, you know, visual experiences as we possibly can. And I think people spend sometimes more time at museums reading the little placard next to the art <laughs> as they do looking at the art. So if you're, if you force yourself to look at something for that long, it does shift your perception and you, you obviously start to notice things that you overlooked the, at first. And maybe by the end of it, you even have a completely different understanding of the piece that you were looking at. So that's the essence of looking slowly. And you, you can do this not just with art, but with other stuff. I think you talked about some design teacher that would say, tell the students, like, you have to look at this rock, but for like an hour. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or packaging or, you know, there's almost anything you can do this with. There's a different exercise in the book about looking out the window, which sounds like such a sort of, I try to have a range of, things that are really super easy to do. Like, you you know, the minute you pick up the book, you can start participating in this. But you could spend 10 minutes looking out a window that you've always walked past. I mean, think about that. Like, in your life, there's a window that you walk past all the time. Maybe you glance out to see if the, you know, the world is on fire. But you don't really, you couldn't really tell me anything about what's the view from that window. And uh, spend 10 minutes looking out a window and look at every edge of what you can perceive. Then do it again a week later and see what's changed, you know? 
So it's applicable in all kinds of contexts. Yeah, Thoreau did like looking slowly exercises. He would just look at a plant or a yes. bug for yes. hours, hours, yes. like like the entire day. Yes. And people are people are dismissive of that because it's like, well, you know, there was nothing to do and throughout time. Now you can now you can play Pokemon Go or whatever. And it's true, we have more distractions at our fingertips, but there are good reasons to sometimes say, I don't need to do that. Like I want to I want to pick up on, yeah, looking at watch, spend 10 minutes watching a bug crawl, you know. Kids do it and kids love it. And there's something to be said for reconnecting with that childhood innocence and wonder and seeing the world. No, yeah, that you talk about kids have a natural disposition to do that. And I saw this firsthand. We were in vacation, on vacation in Vermont, and my daughter, she's five, she we went to this river to go swim, but she was like in the shallow section and she was there for probably a half hour on her hands and knees, just looking. <laughs> she was looking for rocks and she was looking for That's fish. Beautiful. And she just sat there like yeah. for literally a half an hour. Yeah. And it's also fun to see her because she has her own little collections. She's got rock collections. Yeah. And she's always on the lookout for ch- loose change. And she finds it all the time <laughs> because she knows where to look. Like she goes to places where people overlook. So we were at an ice cream store the other day and there was like a, a vending machine. And so mm. she like went underneath the vending machine and she pulled out all this loose change. She's like, oh, look what I found. <laughs> That's great. And it's great that you pick up on that, you know, and that you can, uh, I'm always telling people like that kids are good inspiration for this kind of thing. And if you have access to a child, (laughs) you know, take inspiration from like, pay attention to what they're paying attention to, because uh, they don't have that jaded feeling of having seen it all before. The world is full of wonder. Saul Bella used to talk about trying to view the world like an alien. For, kid, for kids, that comes naturally. They, they sort of are aliens, you know? <laughs> it's all right. novel to them. So they get very excited about things. And uh, we shouldn't dismiss that. We should embrace it and we should be jealous. So in museums, there's a lot of exercises you provided. And like the slow looking. So just look at a painting for 10 minutes, 30 minutes even if you're, if you're feeling bold. But the thing with museums though, they're designed so that you pay attention to certain objects, right? Like there's a light and the way that things are put on, put on the wall or on a pedestal. So what can we do in museums so we notice things that we're not supposed to notice? Yeah, it's a really super interesting context because there's a lot of thought is put into making you pay attention to the right things and not, you're not supposed to be looking at the guards. You're not supposed to be, you're not supposed to be noticing that like, Oh, it's kind of dusty on this <laughs> vitrine or whatever. So to, in a nutshell, it's basically try to pay attention to things that, that you're not supposed to pay attention to. So among the things I suggest are, are in fact paying attention to the guards. I often will ask a guard what their favorite piece is. You know, you don't want to hassle these people. They're doing their job, but they have a different relationship to this room full of art than you will ever have. Like they spend so much time there. I think I like to, to encourage people to tune into objects that could be art. And this is a little bit inspired by because that, because those spaces are so charged with, you know, importance. There, there have been a number of incidents. There was one, I think, in San Francisco where somebody left a pair of glasses on the floor. And people started to just assume it was a piece. (laughs) There were people gathering around this pair of glasses and taking pictures of it. So 
I like to say like, look for things that aren't art, but could be maybe the fire extinguisher, maybe some security camera, perhaps. And then another one is people don't pay attention to this, but you know, when you're walking around a museum, you're often walking into like the, you know, the Rob Walker wing of the uh, thing, like, and, but, and it's a name that's not really familiar to you. Here's a place where your phone is actually maybe useful. Like, go ahead and Google who is who. Who is this person that this wing is named after, and see if there were any interesting uh, things about them. Or in the case of, I actually got to chance to lead a museum walk in Dallas at the Dallas Museum of Art, and we did this. And the, there was this one collection of stuff that was displayed in a really idiosyncratic way, and that's because this this donor who the wing was named after insisted on that format (laughs) so it's kind of interesting you learn something that not that the museum was hiding that but that they weren't it doesn't get foregrounded so it gives you a completely different way of uh, taking in the stuff that you're being asked to look at yeah i do that with the um looking at the plaques of like who who the donors were like at yeah uh, yeah like even at schools you'll often see this find out who they were i like the idea of asking people at museums who you would not think to ask what their favorite piece of art were it was or is mm-hmm. and the idea that just came was ask a janitor mm-hmm. right because sure. they're in there all the time and yeah. you, you typically go oh, janitor doesn't have an opinion about art but no they probably have their favorite piece of art yeah for sure and you know and museums in general are you know, they they want people to approach the work with different perspectives. You know what I mean? I think that they're thrilled to have that and that they would like to have they would like to have more people coming to the museum with a fresh per, or an open perspective that, yeah, like let the guard lead the tour almost. <laughs> I think that they're open to that. It's not an antagonistic thing. I think that they're uh, they're into it because they are, but it's a, it's an interesting environment because it, you 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 have this feeling that like you have to do it right and you don't have to do it right. You can do it any way you want. We're gonna take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Hiring can be a slow process. Cafe Ultura's COO Dylan Miskowitz needed to hire a director of coffee for his organic coffee company, but he was having trouble finding qualified candidates. So he switched to ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you, it finds them for you. Its technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. So you get qualified candidates fast. Dylan posted a job on ZipRecruiter and said he was impressed by how quickly he had great candidates apply. He also used ZipRecruiter's candidate rating feature to filter his applicants so he could focus on the most relevant ones. And that's how Dylan found his new director of coffee in just a few days. With results like that, it's no wonder four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for business of all sizes? Try ZipRecruiter for free at our web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. If you are a small business owner or a hiring manager, check out ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Also by The Great Courses Plus. Have you heard the phrase, you don't know what you don't know? Well, The Great Courses Plus is the perfect place to help fill in those gaps. There are thousands of lectures on virtually any topic you can think of, the human brain, great space missions, pirate wars, and even playing the guitar, all presented by top professors and experts in their field. There's a whole world of history, knowledge, and ideas to explore, and The Great Courses Plus app makes it easy to watch or listen anytime, anywhere. One course I recommend checking out, it's brand new. It's called Outdoor Fundamentals, Everything You Need to Know to Stay Safe. And you're going to find topics in this lecture on how to plan and uh, execute a backpacking trip, uh, introduction to navigation, 
how to dress for the outdoors, how to, it's basically like Boy Scouts in a lecture format. So a great thing to listen to before you go on an outdoor adventure to refresh and review if you know this stuff already, or if you have never done this stuff, you get a basic idea. So go check it out. It is Outdoor Fundamentals, only at The Great Courses Plus. And if you'd like to try this, got a special offer for my listeners. Right now, for a limited time only, my listeners can get a month free when you use my exclusive URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash manliness. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash manliness to get a free trial and check out Outdoor Fundamentals. And now back to the show. So we've everyone's probably seen those photos of masses of people surrounding some famous work of art like the Mona Lisa, uh, and they're snapping pics with their smartphone, which I never understand because it's like, your pic's going to be really crappy. <laughs> but you recommend people don't take pictures at art museums, but rather draw art they see. Why, why is that? Well, so drawing, and I cannot pretend that I am the inventor of this idea, but drawing in general is widely believed to, to, I mean, if you have to draw something, you look at it in a completely different way. You're looking at details, you're looking at shape, you're looking at form, you're engaging with it, whether that is drawing another artwork or whether it's drawing, I have suggestion in the book of like, draw everything, draw everything on your desk. You know, you could draw what you see out the window. People's immediate reaction to this is always like, well, I can't draw. Well, you don't have to put these drawings on the internet. Just get yourself a notebook, a cheap notebook, because <laughs> the point isn't to show off. The point is to work on your powers of perception and just do one. Make a drawing. Don't worry about showing it to anyone. And then the next day, do another one and then do another one and just have fun with it. Don't worry if you're making faithful reproductions. Just think about how the act of drawing it forces you to slow down. It forces you to pay attention to detail. It forces you to see. And that's a really important exercise. I try to make writers do it when I, I teach a different sort of workshop about writing about objects. And I encourage the participants in that to spend time. If you really want to learn how to describe something, try drawing it and you'll force yourself to perceive it in this much more detailed way. So a lot of opportunities to flex those noticing muscles at the museum or even just in noticing and drawing things on your own desk. Another game you suggested for people to start noticing thing is if whatever situation you might be in, say you're at a restaurant, is you look at all, all the people involved who are there and ask yourself, what would be, like a, what would be the plot of a high story <laughs> in this situation? So what, what does this yeah. exercise cause you to notice that you overlook? This is, there's a couple of people who I talked to for the book who I'm a big fan of making up stories essentially about, about people around you as a way to pass the time. But I had Dan Ariely, the behavioral psychologist, talk about looking at forces and Jeff Manock, the writer, talking about these kind of, uh, you know, heist plots and disaster scenarios and stuff like this. And, you know, it's, it's, it's 50 50, it's 50% imagination and 50% observation. And they fuel each other. So, and seriously, it is just a game, but it's a more, to me, it's more fun than, than checking Instagram to just speculate like, okay, what clues can I pick up on? What do I think this person, like, who's the most likely, you know, bad guy <laughs> or whatever you want to say in the room. And then it makes you look at like, what are my escape routes? How is this room really designed? Why are these tables so close together? 
how do I route around? There's a, another thing in the book about this friend of mine who is always looking for the quickest way out of a party because <laughs> he hates parties. <laughs> and it just, uh, it, it gives you a little reset, a different way of looking at it. I find this comes in super handy. And, you know, you mentioned different scenarios, but I like it when I'm stuck in line, you know, the security line at the airport. Great place to start making up stories right. about <laughs> in your head about who's who's going to do what, who's going to be the hero, who's going to be the problem. Yeah, because you have to look at the people, their body language. Uh, so one guy might look like he's in a rush or he's nervous, and you look at what they're carrying. Like, why right. are they carrying that? You know, why are they wearing that T-shirt? Are these people together? Are they right. not together? Yeah. Who are they? Like, maybe these other. It's like, oh, I bet this person and this other person who are like 10, 10 people apart, they're actually in league. You know, it's fun. It's just fun. Now, you know, obviously I should just put in the caveat that like, be discreet and sane about all this. Right. Don't, yeah. um, well, you, you can just do it in your head. You don't have to like narrate it out loud. You're just it in your head. You're, right. making, you're making time go by. Well, I say similar to this, we've had a lot of self-defense experts come on the show and they talk about situational awareness. Where you're in a room, where you're in a building, the first thing you do is you figure out or you decide or observe where all the exits are at. Right. Yeah. Even the exits you might not notice because people forget, like, say, your grocery store, there's exits in the back, right, where it says employees only. And you got to think about yep. that because people overlook yep. that. Yeah. It, it, it is. It's absolutely a form of situational awareness, which I associate with. And I'm sure, do you know that book, Left of Bang? Yeah. Yeah. We've, we've had them yeah. on the podcast. Yeah. I was going to say. And so, so, but this is a sort of situational awareness light. Like it's not, um, you're not sort of in the mindset, but that's a fine mindset to be in. If you're just, you know, you're just using it to pass the time. You're not being paranoid or whatever. It's really interesting to think about that stuff and to try to, it is a way, it is a way of engaging with the world as opposed to, you know, being the passive person who is just engaged with their phone. Another thing you can do is spy on what people are doing with their phones. I'm a big fan of that. Mm. So what what do you notice people doing with their phones? My two favorite thing, well, uh, my favorite anecdote about this, actually another San Francisco story is I was on the, I, I do like to peek at what, you know, I kind of like discreetly looking over people's shoulders. And once I was on the BART in San Francisco and I was looking at like, what's that guy doing with his phone? And he was playing a, a game that, you know, it was, <laughs> it was a game that involved using your finger to direct a piece of trash into the garbage can, you know, like you would sit in your office and throw a wadded up piece of paper into the garbage can. It was that, but digital, like that's what he was doing. <laughs> but then, you know, a lot of people, the, the other thing that's great to look at is how people who are talking on the phone, like their body language, it's almost like a dance performance because they're, they're reacting to the conversation that they're in, not the world that they're in. So they're gesturing with their hands and they're making facial expressions, all for some audience. And, you know, they're holding their phone in that weird way up to their mouth like a tray. Right, you know? yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it looks like someone needs to do a dance performance that's based on, on, on phone conversation gestures. It's like a madcap visual poetry thing. I love it. I recommend, I recommend and that's something to, good to draw as well. So another exercise is uh, find something you weren't looking for. What does that look like? So this was inspired by, have you ever had Davey Rothbart on the uh, no. show? So he, he's this guy who, uh, he's this, this zine and then podcast and books and all kinds of stuff called Found. And he is a proponent of like, you're walking down the street, you see a piece of trash blow by that has some handwriting on it. 
don't kick it out of your way. Pick it up and look at it. You weren't looking for it, but um, and he has built a whole kind of mini empire of like finding these fascinating. It started for him with uh, someone left a note on his car that they, they mistook his car for their ex boyfriend's car or something, and said like, "I can't believe you're here and you're seeing her again, aren't you?" And all this stuff, this crazy note. And then at the end of the this hostile note, it said like, "Text me later." <laughs> And he realized there was like a whole short, there was a whole novel practically built into this like random thing that he wasn't looking for. So he says like, you know, a lot of times you'll pick up a piece of piece of uh, discarded writing somewhere on the street and it'll be nothing. But one out of every 10 times, one out of every 20 times, there's a little story in there. And, you know, it's an opportunity again to be surprised and delighted by something you weren't looking for. Right. Grocery lists can tell a story. Grocery lists can be really interesting. Yeah. They're worth, they're worth scrutiny. They're worth a little bit of attention. I had a friend, this reminded me uh, in high school, this was before cell phones. So whenever you wanted to communicate to somebody, you wrote notes, right? For in school, he would collect notes that he found on the ground that are discarded and then he would turn them into songs. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Which was, some of them were really like poignant because they're, these are like these, you know, angsty, like teenage love letters, but other ones are just silly because, you know, teenagers are silly. That's perfect though. I mean, that's a way of embracing the universe and taking it as like, this isn't trash. This is potential inspiration and it's a personal challenge. What can I do with this? You know, how can I convert this thing that was literally discarded by the world? How can I redeem it, turn it into some piece of creativity? I mean, that's, Again, one of the reasons there are so many artists in the book is that the artists are so good at at recognizing that the overlooked is the beginning of creativity. So we've been talking about noticing with our eyes, because that's what people think of, but we can notice things with our other senses. What are some things that we can do, do to notice with our ears, our smell, our taste, et cetera? Yeah, the book's actually set up this way. We start with visual stuff and then it moves into the other senses for exactly this reason because i think that people immediately associate when you say noticing they immediately think visual but there are a couple of things that i would suggest one that i do in my life all the time is this it's in the book it's it's described as there's a famous john cage composition called 433 that when it was first performed consisted of someone sitting in front of the piano and not playing it for four minutes and 33 seconds. Now, this was not a very popular piece (laughs) when it was performed, but, you know, it's a comment. It's People read it as a comment on silence, but it's really a comment on listening. And it's really a comment on, on engaging with everything you can and can't hear. So I suggest hijacking that and covering, as as the way a cover band would cover something, Cover 433, which you can do at any time. You can not play the piano for four minutes and 33 seconds. And I'll literally do this. I'll put my phone on the timer on 433 and just sit in my office and see what sounds come at me, which could be, I, I live in New Orleans. I work at home in a residential neighborhood pointing at a, my office points at a quiet street. So there might be some bird song. There might be a train in the distance. My neighbor, Peter, might be out holding forth on the porch as he does from time to time. (laughs) And um, you kind of, over time, build up a little sort of like repertoire of what are the sounds of my neighborhood. So that's sort of challenge that I put in the book is think about having a, what if you had to draw a map of the most interesting sounds in your neighborhood, the five most interesting sounds? Then you can extend that to other senses. What if you had to do a map of the five most interesting 
smells in your neighborhood. And there are artists who have done elaborate smell walk tours of cities, you know, trying to sort of capture. And we all know how visceral that sense of smell can be. Or you could build something around textures. Taste is trickier. <laughs> right. You don't want to go lick in buildings or whatever. You don't really want to go lick building. But you can think about, uh, you could think about five tastes that, 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 that define your neighborhood with being uh, restaurants and things like that. Um, but the, and then we even in the, in the book, I even get into the idea of Duchamp talked about this idea of the infra thin, which is stuff that's kind of beyond the five senses, like the feeling of the chair that someone has just gotten out of Mm. things that kind of don't really get. So that gets kind of advanced, but it's fun to think about like what, what, what senses are, what, what can I detect that doesn't even fall within the five senses? And it becomes, you know, again, it becomes game. Like I licked buildings when I was a kid. (laughs) <laughs> and you're still here to tell the tale. I'm still here to tell the tale. No, yeah, when I read that about taste, uh, and that's the right, God, you can lick it. And I was like, I did that. Because I remember I could, I, the memory came flooding back. You know, I, I grew up in Oklahoma City, and our we did our banking at the Murrah building that uh-huh. you know, was bombed. But I remember distinctly licking that building for some reason. And wow, I don't that your book helped me remember that. So, <laughs> well, I mean, maybe we could convert it into like, you don't want to lick buildings, but but like be really ambitious and adventurous about like where you can taste things as you move about your city or your neighborhood or the neighborhood you work in. And short of licking buildings, but like where taste can be found. Yeah. That's a good challenge. Yeah, rock rocks have taste. People don't they do have a taste. To them. <laughs> um so we also talk about in the book, you talk about like the role of solitude in noticing. What is What's the role? Do you think most noticing is like, is it is an individual thing um, primarily, or can you do this with a group? Uh, you can do both. And there's the way that the, the way that what happens next in the, in the way the book is structured, the way the uh, exercises are organized is there are, there's a batch that are specifically designed it to help you in, in noticing other people basically. But then it does end on a, on a more personal inward note with ideas about, and I think this is important now to go back to what we were talking about at the beginning. There are, there are very logical reasons why we need to be aware, you know, why that fear of missing out thing is real. Like we want to be generally aware of what the pack, the tribe, the society is thinking about, but it's also kind of vital and it's harder now to take that time to devote to yourself, to devote to your own reflection. So the, some of the ideas literally come down to, in one case, make an appointment with yourself the same way that you make appointments all week long with people for work reasons or social reasons or whatever. Give yourself that hour a week where, and this came from Mike Birbiglia talking about <laughs> the way he put it was, you have an appointment with your brain <laughs> at uh, Thus and So Cafe. This is so he could work on a personal project and feel like that's as important and you have to honor that as much as you honor business meetings. And then I had a student who I, I make my students invent their own exercise, attention exercise. And I had a student who said, Oh, I misunderstood the assignment. I did it wrong. Cause what I did was I bought a cactus and I took care of it for a week. <laughs> and I said, okay, that's definitely not what I had in mind, but caring for something is the ultimate, you know, act of attention. And that is the goal. 
of building those attention muscles is to make sure that you're paying attention to what you care about and you care about what you're paying attention to. Well, Rob, this has been a fun conversation. Like, There's a ton more of these exercises in the book. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? So the best place to go is robwalker.net. And robwalker.net slash noticing is the section that has stuff about the book, including the, there's a newsletter that comes out every week or two where I share new exercises or ideas that I've come up with since the book. And also the very popular icebreaker of the week feature (laughs) where I get people to submit. And if you have listeners who have a good icebreaker question, I really hope that they'll zoom on over there and submit it because that's a reader driven feature. So that's the best place. I'm on Twitter at not Rob Walker and Facebook at facebook.com slash consumed. So any of those places are good. So the icebreaker that's intrigued me. What is like the most bizarre, interesting icebreaker prompt you've gotten? Well, this is a little bit of a cheat because it's something that I got from, and I give her Whitney, her name's Whitney, who she in some ways inspired this whole thing and has this amazing, had this amazing question that I experienced in real life. I was seeing her for, it was part of a group work thing and we were at lunch and she had this question about whether under the right circumstances, if you were offered a chance to eat human flesh... <laughs> <laughs> but you were guaranteed that no one would like that for what somehow no one was harmed. Would you taste it? Would you taste it? And listening to people answer that and like their rationales and the looks on their faces. I know that sounds weird, but uh, it's really interesting. It's a really good icebreaker. Yeah. Do that on your first date. <laughs> do not, do not do that on your Dating advice from Rob Walker. Ask if no, you're yeah, right, right, right. No. Well, Rob, this has been a great conversation. Thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Listen, I really appreciate it. You were great. My guest today was Rob Walker. He's the author of the book, The Art of Noticing. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about his work at his website, robwalker.net. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash noticing. We can find links to resources. We can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanless.com where you can find our podcast archives. There's over 500 episodes there, as well as thousands of articles we've written over the years on personal finance, physical fitness, how to be a better husband, better father, you name it, we've got it. And if you'd like to enjoy new episodes ad-free of the Art of Manliness podcast, you can do so in Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, use code MANLINESS to get a month free trial of Stitcher Premium. And once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and start listening to ad-free episodes of the Art of Manliness podcast. And if you have done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you not only to listen to the AWIN podcast, but put what you've heard into action. <laughs>